but I want to draw your attention to the packet that you should have in uh, front of you um, that, that uh, you should have gotten your email, uh, the, especially the back page. We um, on the back page, you've got a, a, a relatively good timeline, I think, for where the kings are that we're talking about and where they're, um, uh, you know, what times they reigned and which, which place they reigned in. There's two columns on the far left and on the far right, or one column on the far left and one column on the far right. This says Israel on the left and Judah on the right. And those are the kings that reigned in those respective kingdoms. So the king in the north uh, being the king of Israel, uh, the 10 tribes that are located in the north, and then the king of the southern kingdom, um, Judah and Benjamin, would be the kingdom of Judah on the right. And it's their relative years when they reigned and lined up as close as possible with the king that they reigned um, uh, opposing. And then in the two middle columns, we're going to fill this out as we go. So this is going to slowly uh, begin to fill in. I will include this every time. You don't have to print it off every time if you don't want to. But, um, but basically, I'm going to try to put the prophet and what kingdom they prophesied to predominantly. Some of the prophets are going to be assigned to particular kingdoms. So some of the prophets are going to be assigned to the north or assigned to the south. And in Elijah's case, he's not really assigned to the north, I suppose, but spends most of his time prophesying in the north. He's going to flee to the south here in just a little bit next week, but, um, but he's mostly to the, the north. And, but we will see prophets that are, uh, that are targeted at particular areas. And then there will be another category open up when a prophet is, is called to like Nineveh or to other places like that. Um, that would be in, in another category. So we're going to fill those out as we get to them. And hopefully by the time we get through with this part of the study, you'll have a, a relatively good idea of when these prophets um, came about. And in particular, the writing prophets, those are the ones that we're really, really concerned with because as you get to those places in the Old Testament, it helps to understand who they're prophesying to and during what era, because that gives you an indication of why their prophecy is the way it is and, and some historical context. So that's the hope of that. You've got your verse packet, uh, verse page uh, just before that, and then obviously our uh, information for tonight. And so as we think about what happened last week and what we talked about last week, you remember that we uh, really wanted to lay out what is the significance of God's word coming to his people. And so um, it, it, it's you, you have to understand that his word, when he speaks to his people, going all the way, or just speaks in general, going all the way back to Genesis, when he speaks, galaxies come into being. So uh, things are created out of nothing. And so God's word has a moving capacity to it, a creating capacity to it. And so when Yahweh attacks, or when Yahweh speaks to his people who are in sin, it is an adversarial word. He's commanding them to reform and to change. And what we see in the prophets is exactly that. He is giving his word, putting his word in the mouth of the prophet. And that prophet is going to the people and saying what is on the very mind of God. They're not speaking on their own accord. They're speaking the actual words of God. And when those words come out, they are commanding people to repent. And if they don't, obviously they incur judgment uh, of various kinds. And so that's, there's a significance there that, that God is, is actually giving to his people a, a, an individual who represents him t 
totally, at least in word, and can, can speak with authority. That if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen to you as a result of, of that. And, um, and so we saw that there is one such situation in the north where uh, Ahab has taken the throne. And Ahab is this, uh, ha- has sort of a re- uh, repetitive nature to him in that he is really a, a mirror image of a story we've heard already. And, and there's many patterns that we're going to see come up again that we've seen already, that have already been kind of hinted at in the rest of the Old Testament, really, in various other things that Israel's gone through. Well, Ahab starts to pattern himself after this sort of Solomon-type character in that he is he marries foreign women. He goes after the princess uh, of Sidon. Jezebel is her name. She is um, she obviously is is the daughter of a king of uh, Sidon. Sidon is a sister city to Tyre. Tyre is the city that Solomon partnered with to build his temple. Well, uh, Ahab marries a, a woman from Sidon, the princess of Sidon, and commences to being a temple builder as well. The difference is he's not a temple builder for Yahweh. We saw with the temple in Jerusalem that Yahweh has said, that is the place where mine, I have chosen for my name to dwell Whereas Ahab, what he commences to building is pagan temples, temples that are, are toward the worship of Baal, which is significant in the story that we're about to talk about tonight. But he becomes this temple builder similar to Solomon, except he's sort of a, a counterfeit version of Solomon. But his temples are there to worship the god Baal. We're going to talk about in a, in a, few, in a couple of weeks uh, Baal and just what what that means and uh get to the, the various baals that would be worshiped you may have heard the the name uh, Beelzebub. Uh, it actually comes from baal and it's a, a certain iteration of the god baal and so um we're, we're going to talk more about that in a few weeks but suffice it to say that's what they're given to worship what ahab is given to worship and all of these kings in the north are trying to establish a national identity that is a part from the worship of God, which is tragic. And it actually ends up leading to the overthrow of all their, their kingdoms, uh, even though they think that that's going to actually lead to the support of their kingdom. So what does Yahweh do? The Lord ha- sees the wickedness of this northern kingdom that he has intentionally created and torn away from Solomon and from Solomon's line and from Rehoboam. And yet this... Northern kingdom has run away from the Lord altogether. And so what does Yahweh do? Does he just wipe them off the face of the earth and start over? Does he um, just destroy them utterly? Uh, No, he doesn't write his people off. He actually raises up Elijah, one of the most significant prophets in the history of of all of Israel, the entire nation of Israel, north or south, uh, mainly because of not only Yahweh's, uh, I mean, not only Elijah's, power and the things that he did and the ways the Lord worked through him, but also because of what he had to face, uh, intense persecution, uh, almost nobody in favor of him or with him. And yet he kind of steeled his face, set his face like flint, as it were, and preached into the wind, uh, into the face of these kings, and particularly Ahab and his wife, who wanted to kill him. And, uh, and so 
here, here is Elijah. And why is he on the scene? And why is he given the power that he's given? That's significant. I mean, think about that for just a second. He, he doesn't just send anybody. He sends a prophet who demonstrates with incredible signs that the Lord is with him. Uh, raising the, the dead, the, the widow's dead son, providing for the widow. He's going to do other miracles as well. Obviously, one tonight that we're going to see significantly. He, he brings a, a prophet of peculiar power to the, the kingdom. And why do you think that is? Potentially, I think it's probably because they're so hardened in their heart that here is no excuse not to repent. Here it is, right here, in the demonstration of Yahweh's power through Elijah. There's no excuse not to repent. And so God is sending his prophet. But there's some, a little piece that I want to revisit last week. I touched on it just briefly, and I wanted to do a little bit more um, the, uh, tonight before we get into the story, obviously, that, that many of us know and love. And, and one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture uh, is the one we're going to talk about tonight in 1 Kings 18. Um, but remember the setting. Remember, uh, there's a, a drought in Israel in the northern kingdom, and it's a drought that Elijah has told them is coming. And Elijah was sent there by the Lord to tell Ahab to his face, there's going to be a drought, and you're not going to get any relief from the drought until I come back and give you relief. And so this drought has been going on for three years. And Ahab is now to a point where many of his you know, his, uh, his livestock and, and things like that are, you know, starting to die and starting to become in real need of water. They're starting to feel the effects of the drought and have been for some time. And so, uh, Ahab sends his servants out into the field and he goes as well and takes his livestock out to look for water so that they could eat grass and that they could drink. And the Lord appears to Elijah and tells him, go and tell Ahab uh, that you want to talk and that, that there's going to be relief. And so uh, Elijah goes and, and does this, but finds Ahab's servant who is in the middle of the field, you know, providing water for the, the or trying to find water. And the servant is hesitant because he tells the servant, look, go find Ahab. I want to talk to him. And the servant is really hesitant because Ahab is mad by this point. I mean, he is really ticked off. And if, if the servant reasons, well, if I go and I tell Ahab, you want to talk to him and I can't find you for some reason, he's going to kill me. I don't want to be the messenger that comes and deals with anything you got going on. So I would rather you just go tell him yourself. And Elijah assures him, I'm going to be here when you get back. So just go and find him and come back and, and tell me and, or let me meet him. And so, um, the servant goes and finds Ahab and Ahab gathers his stuff and goes to Elijah and Ahab says something to him. He calls him the troubler of Israel. You can go to that first slide if you have it up there, if you don't have it already up there. He calls him the troubler of Israel. Look at your, uh, in your verse packet there in 1 Kings 18, 17 to 18. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Okay, now this is really significant because 
for a couple of reasons. One of which it sets up it sets us up for the what we're about what's about to happen on Mount Carmel. But so that's that's one thing. This context sets us up for that. But the other thing that this does is it it sort of ties in to some things that have happened in Israel's history previously. A, a lot of times as you read through the Old Testament, and sometimes we don't notice them, sometimes we glaze over them. And I think sometimes even with phrases like troubler of Israel, we might be inclined to just say, well, you just called him a troubler of Israel and move on. But a lot of times in the Old Testament, there are these uh, hyperlinks. And, and I think they've best been described as that as you get to them, if you know, like on a web page, you get to the little blue underlined word and you click it and it takes you to another website where whatever they were talking about in that article is referenced. And, uh, and it, it's sort of similar in the Old Testament and, and even in the New. A lot of times you can read through some of these phrases and they're really hyperlinks that are, that are taking you back to some things that happened previously. Um, this troubler of Israel has come up before and it was in uh, the time of Joshua when they went out to uh, do battle and they conquered the city of Jericho. And there was a, a particular individual by the name of Achan who took some stuff, some, some spoils from Jericho. Remember Jericho, they were supposed to conquer and burn to the ground through what we refer to as harim, which is like the devotion to God, where you just burn everything to the ground, literally everything in that city. You burn it to the ground in devotion to God. Well, Achan took it upon himself to take a few things for himself because there were some riches there. And so he took them and, uh, you can go ahead and go to the next slide. Um, he gives this uh, epithet because there, Achan is, uh, is referred to as um, a troubler of Israel. And Joshua and his men had escaped God's curse. And how had they escaped God's curse in the past? Well, they had identified this troubler of Israel. They had not only identified him, they, they found him, and then they stoned him to death. They killed him. And so um, this is really significant because if you remember last time we talked about that this following on the right on the heels of Ahab's men going and rebuilding Jericho. So there's a rebuilding effort towards Jericho that's just happened and we saw that was actually a product of Ahab's idolatry but after the rebuilding of Jericho or during the rebuilding of Jericho then Ahab sees someone as the troubler of Israel who has caused this curse to fall upon them. So you can see back in Joshua 6, 18, he says, but you, but you keep, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. And, and in 725, Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned, him, they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. So this, this word and this connection really has some connotations to, um, to someone bringing a curse upon Israel. And so Ahab's this level of mad at Elijah. And he considers him to be the one who has brought this curse upon the nation of Israel. But here's something significant that you need to know. The northern kingdom worships Baal. Uh, we sometimes call him Baal, and that's fine too. You can call him Baal. Um, it got ingrained into me calling Baal way back when, and so I've just, I can't, 
it's hard not to say that. So, um, so Baal is the god of rain. That's somewhat significant for the context of our story, isn't it? Because uh, they're without rain, and they have been for three years. If you were, were if you worshipped a god who caused it to rain, which we do, um, and you believed controlled the rain, which we do, and it hadn't rained for three years, and there was someone who came in who was represented another god, and he, you know, projected a curse and whatever on you, then uh, wouldn't you say he was the one that brought trouble upon your nation, and you would be turning to your god? Well, obviously, this is not only uh, significant for the Joshua story, but this also sets us up quite nicely for what's about to happen on, on Mount Carmel. Um, but he considers him to be the one that brought the curse and that Baal is mad at them because they've allowed this Elijah character to come into uh, their, their kingdom and do what he's done. At the same time that Ahab says this to Elijah, it also tells us something really significant in this narrative. First of all, that Ahab has a fundamental misunderstanding about the source of his problem. It, it actually doesn't lie in the prophet at all. It lies in himself. So Ahab should be mad at himself, but he's not. He's mad at uh, Elijah. And so it, it, it brings Elijah to the point where he has to correct him and tell him clearly, no, this is your fault. God is doing this. So here, we've already got a battle brewing. Here's Baal, God of rain, and many other things, fertility and fertility of crops and, and things like this too, but, but the God of, of rain. And he's saying, look, Baal is mad at us because of you. And Elijah is saying, no, Yahweh, who really controls the rain, is mad at you because of your rampant idolatry. And so, next slide, this actually, this trouble has religious roots, and both the king and Elijah are essentially saying and agreeing that this has religious roots. They just don't agree on the religion. They don't agree on the God that has brought this calamity about and so Elijah is saying it's the abandonment of the Lord's commands, Ahab, that has brought this trouble upon you. And it's precisely because of your worship of Baal that the rain has stopped. It's not in spite of your worship. It's, it, or it, it's, it's because of your worship. It's precisely because of your worship that the rain has stopped. And it's Ahab, not Elijah, who, is, who plays the role of Achan in this narrative. You're the troubler of Israel. You're the one that's stolen what God has told you not to steal, namely his people and the worship that his people are to give him. And so now that the identity of the troubler of Israel, on the next slide there, has been settled in public before all Israel, it is before all of Israel gathered on Mount Carmel that the issue is now going to be settled. And if you look... Uh, go ahead and go. That's Mount Carmel. Uh, go ahead and go to that next slide. This is a, a map uh, of where Mount Carmel is, very close to the sea. And the reason I wanted wanted to draw your attention to that is because that's going to come up in the in the passage tonight. Is that they're going to look to the sea from Mount Carmel. Uh, you can actually visit Mount Carmel 
uh, to this day. And next time I, I come, I'll put a slide up of a picture of what it, what it looks like. I, I wanted, wanted to do that this time and I just totally forgot. So forgive me. Uh, but Mount Carmel is toward the uh, western seaboard, really, close to the Mediterranean Sea. You can see it's up toward the northern end of the nation of Israel. You see the Sea of Galilee over there on the far right. So that's in the northern area. Obviously, Jesus' ministry is going to be right there in the sea, near the Sea of Galilee, all the way across the country, but on the same kind of uh, whatever that is, longitudinal line. Um, uh, or is that, I think it's the latitudinal line, I think it is, uh, is Mount Carmel. Uh, over there. We know where it is and, and it's a great place to visit. So there you go. Um, just give you an idea of the lay of the land of where they are. Now, so uh, on the next slide here, who is responsible for the drought? That's the main question that's being answered, that's being asked. Uh, who is the one responsible for the drought? Is it the worshipers of Baal or the worshipers of the Lord? And, and that question, who's responsible for the drought? is really bound up into a bigger question. Who is really God? That's that's what we're really dealing with here in the scene on Mount Carmel where Elijah is going to uh, scorn the the prophets of Baal. Uh, Is that question before all of the nation of Israel. Who is really God? Now, I want you to notice a few things in this. Let me go ahead and read the passage in, in 1 Kings 18, 20 to 24. It says, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. You call upon the name of your God and I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. This sounds like a pretty good duel is basically what they're agreeing upon. But I I want you to notice a couple of things that the people are being led by this king, obviously. Elijah considers them to still be persuadable, and he presents them with this challenge. He wants all of Israel to observe what is about to happen. And he kind of gets on them for limping between two opinions, he says. But you also have to notice that they kind of aren't. By their silence, they've kind of determined Baal is God. By their, by their silence they have gone along with what Ahab has done. They're not in a surefire hurry to jump on Elijah's bandwagon and celebrate that finally we have some relief from this. They're not the ones suffering here. They're in cahoots with Ahab and taking part in what Ahab is doing. 
And so they're guilty and they're complicit in all of this precisely because of their silence. Silence in the midst of idolatry does not get us off the hook. So, and it doesn't for them either, but there is this uh, contest, as it were, that's going to be put on before, um, before them. And the odds are stacked against Elijah. Elijah's got 450 prophets against him. That's another huge theme of this whole scene that's taking place is how outnumbered and how understated everything that Elijah is going to do really is. When he prays, it's, it's going to be a very mild prayer, especially in comparison to the worshipers of Baal. And there's 450 of them. Incidentally, if you go back in the passage, and I didn't put this passage in your verse list, but uh, on your own time, you can read this. I think it's at the end of chapter 17, if I'm not mistaken, or there in the midst of 18, that Elijah actually invited the prophets of Asherah as well um, and told Jezebel to bring her prophets as well. So 450 of Baal, and he invited 400 prophets from the, of the Asheroth to, to there to Mount Carmel. And for whatever reason, Jezebel's people don't show up. And, and potentially that's because they figure, uh, you got 450 against one prophet? Come on. Uh, it should be easy enough. And uh, we're going to see exactly what, what happens. But this is the people, the, the people have, their hearts have strayed. They are bought in hook, line, and sinker to what, where the king is leading them toward pagan worship. And so this ordeal of fire is devised to really present to them who really God is and draw them back into repentance. And so the one who answers by fire, he is God, and the people will be expected to follow him. And Elijah has defied, if, he, if this happens for Elijah, Elijah will have defied overwhelming odds, seeing that he's one prophet against 450. And so the prophets of Baal make their first attempt. If you go to the next slide, um, the prophets of Baal make their first attempt at getting God to answer them. They're dancing around the altar and they're calling on the name of Baal. Um, and after several hours, which this is by far my favorite part of all of Scripture, it's got to be right here, at least in terms of humor. Um, Elijah begins to taunt them and tells them to redouble their efforts, shout, uh, shouting and slashing themselves with swords. They uh, pierce themselves and bleed all over the altar, trying to get Baal to answer them. Let's, let's read this in, in 18, 25 to 29. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given, given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no answer, and no, uh, no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, using the bathroom, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, 
and no one paid attention. So they began early on in anticipation of the time when the sacrifice would take place. And nothing. In spite of all their going on, nothing happened. Go to the next slide. So up to this point, you understand when prophecy has taken place, when prophets have spoken truly of God, there was an act of communication that happened. There was some sort of uh, interaction between the Lord and His prophet. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. The word of the Lord came to so-and-so. And in this case, no specific divine human communication is in view at all. All that we see happen, the author makes clear to us, not only is there no communication, he says very distinctly, no voice, no answer, no attentiveness. In spite of the fact, notice, they began at morning, they did this all day, and when the time of sacrifice had come, there was nothing. All day, dancing around, and absolutely nothing took place. So, on the one side, the people are watching this big extravaganza, you might say. 450, quote, men of God, small g, come together and they're dancing around and they're doing all of the tricks that they can think of to try to get Baal to respond. And nothing. Now, I know what we tend to focus on with Elijah is the fact that he's going to soak the altar and he's going to do all these things that make it really difficult, quote unquote, for God to do anything. But just as significant is how simply he prays to the Lord and how short his prayer actually is before the Lord. I think that's huge. And the author is not only drawing the distinction here between what Elijah is going to do to prepare his sacrifice, but also how long it actually takes the Lord to respond to someone who is truly his prophet and who truly does speak for him and how little it actually takes the Lord to respond to his children truly. Um, so go to the next slide. Now, Elijah, uh, it's Elijah's turn. He, he rebuilds the altar of the Lord uh, he uses 12 stones rem, uh, reminding the people of the true identity of the Lord's people. And he places on the altar his bull. He saturates the whole area with water. There's so much water that it fills a trench that he's dug around it. And having done all this, Elijah simply prays and the Lord responds immediately. Look at this in, in 1 Kings 18, 30 to 40. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he prepared the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of flour. Everybody knows how much that is. Uh, and he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, 
Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at, that, at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near. Now, this is not all morning. This is at the time. Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Um, So... The fire falls. Uh, the fire of the Lord falls and consumes this, not only the sacrifice, but it consumes everything. It consumes the stones. It consumes the water. It consumes the water in the trench. It consumes the sacrifice. And the people obviously understand the Lord. He is God. And um, understand that those who were really troubling Israel are the prophets of Baal. And those are the ones that are executed. Why? Because the troubler has to be executed. So the expectation would have been that if Baal had won the day, then Elijah would have been executed because he would have been the troubler of Israel. So what's settled is who is God. What is also settled is who is the one causing the trouble. Uh, And the the answer flows from itself, right? Is is if, if if, if Yahweh is God, then the prophets of Baal are the troublers and vice versa. If Baal is God, then, then Elijah is the troubler. And so what has to happen to the troubler? He has, they have to be executed. So 450 prophets of Baal have to be executed, and Ahab is going to be, his justice is coming, but it's going to be forestalled for a moment. And so they executed the baneful influence of the prophets of Baal. So go ahead and go to the next slide. Ahab is going to survive, as I said, for the moment, and he's going to be given the post-sacrificial meal, <laughs> which is you know, ironic, I guess, uh, Elijah is going to tell him to go up and eat from the sacrifice. He's watched this construction of the 12 stone altar. He's seen God now act, and now he has to eat and drink the sacrifice that God has prepared for him. And so this is, talk about an act of humility, or, or a moment where you're humiliated, I should say, is when you have to eat the sacrifice that has happened here. And so Elijah, however, climbs to the top of the mountain mountain to wait for God to relieve the land with rain as God has promised. Let's look at that passage in 1841 to 46. Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing rain, uh, of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down to the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now and look toward the sea, right toward the Mediterranean Sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again seven times. 
And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black and the clouds and wind uh, and uh, with clouds and wind. And there was a great rain and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So Elijah, the marathon runner, grabs up his, his garments and takes off and beats Ahab to the gate of Jezreel before the rain comes. But if you notice something that's happened in the scene, we've read the whole thing. How many times do you hear Ahab speak? Virtually none. Ahab is nearly completely silent in the whole ordeal. He's been the one to lead uh, Israel into idolatry and the worship of Baal. And yet when the showtime came, where's Ahab? Silent in the background. It turns out he's impotent. And he's going to be for the rest of his, his kingship. In fact, Jezebel is the one really calling most of the shots here, it seems. He's an impotent king, and he is as impotent as it turns out his God is that he worships. It turns out there's there's no hope at all in Baal if the people want to be saved. They've had this clearly demonstrated for them here. And how long do you think it's going to be before they return to rampant idolatry? Not long. As the king goes, so goes the nation. Ahab's going to continue in idolatry. Jezebel's going to be really mad that he's killed all the prophets of, of Baal. And she's going to tell him, you know, God help me if I don't do the same thing to you and kill you before this day's over in the next passage. And yet, in spite of all of that, here is Elijah faithfully serving the Lord, faithfully doing what the Lord has asked him to do. And the biggest, to me, the thing that stands out the most in all of this is here is all the prophets of Baal dancing around and singing and doing all this big stuff to try to get their God to respond. And Elijah just asks. And, and I think there's so many things that we can talk about here. The idolatry and, it, and its, its end, which is absolutely nothing, which is death. Um. So we could certainly mention that. Perhaps an understated point that we could take from all of this is just how powerful the God we serve really is. Um, I'm I'm always, I'll tell you what, the Gospel of Matthew for me, it's, it's probably one of my favorite books in the Bible. And in it, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, I'm always astounded in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew chapter 6. And he's teaching his, his disciples to pray. They ask him. And, and, and what he gives to them is this short, we call it the Lord's Prayer, but it, it's, it's very short. We've, most of you have it memorized. It, it seems like nothing. And when you, when you listen to it, you're kind of like, well, is that it? I mean, God, surely there's something more. Don't I have to do this or that? And, and Jesus actually tells his disciples, now, the pagans think that they're going to be heard by their many words. 
the Lord that you serve knows what you need before you even ask him. Give him thanks for what he's provided for you and then ask him for what you need. And he's faithful. He loves his children. He clothes the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. He feeds the birds and he clothes the lilies of the field. And if you're, not, if you're more important than they are, then what would he do for you, for his own children? And so, you know, I, we could spend a lot of time talking about idolatry and, and maybe we do talk about that quite a bit, especially in Kings. But I think, honestly, just prayer and how powerful the Lord actually is. He's proven himself there in front of Israel to be a powerful God who answers and responds to his people. But to me, it's just it hits me in the face just how simplistic Elijah's prayer to him is. How short and simple and sweet. He doesn't go on all day. He simply just asks the Lord to do for this people some, a, a, a miracle to prove to them once and for all that He is their God and that they have no reason not to turn right now, repent of their sin of idolatry, and worship the Lord. And He answers. He does. And so I, I think that for us, that's a, a huge thing to remember is don't make prayer something that it's not. You don't have to have perfect words, big words, $5 words. The Lord already knows what's on your heart. Just acknowledge that He's God. Worship Him. Ask Him for something. If you're His child, He loves you. He cares for you. He knows what you need before you ever ask Him. So ask Him. Questions? Uh, let's see, Michael, it's David. Yeah. I hear you. Uh, it sounds like Ahab knew God's word, at least to make reference to Achan's event. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, there's no doubt. There's no doubt he uh, has at least enough knowledge to hang himself. <laughs> you know, he is certainly not ignorant. No, that, that's for sure. And there's also, too, uh, to some extent, a lot of people in the Bible do things completely out of ignorance, but the biblical authors bring attention to some of their actions to help you see the folly of their actions. So was Ahab perfectly knowledgeable about all of those things? I don't know. Does the author of 1 Kings want you to know what is happening here? A repeat of the Achan story of, of idolatry? Um, yeah, I think so. I think he's at least drawing our attention back to that. How much did Ahab know? I'm not sure, but I don't have any doubt that Ahab knew the story. Yeah. Doug, did you um, I see your hand up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it, it's interesting to me that this is probably 60, 70 years after the death of Solomon. And, and God's people are in complete uh, agnosticism. They don't know who's God. Um, their God had performed all these miracles and Baal's performed nothing. Right. And, and so you have a leader who's a follower of Baal for who knows what reason, but right. um, they follow him. Yeah. And, and so what does that say about the vanity of humankind and how we can be led around? And when Jesus says that 
we are like sheep without a shepherd sometimes. Yeah. Um, it, it's just amazing that I, I, it's amazing because if these are God's people and they're, they have completely lost their way yeah. within 60, 70 years of the death of Solomon. And yeah. so what does that say about us? If we, I know we, we, the Holy Spirit lives within us, but we can grieve the Holy Spirit by the way we live. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, scary, really. It's terrifying. You um, think of think of uh, when the the children of Israel are coming out of Egypt, and they go. Uh, Moses goes up on the mountain for thirty days, and the people are building a calf. I, he's parted the Red Sea for crying out loud. And drown Pharaoh's men, and they get across there, and, and Aaron's building a, a golden calf already. And, you know, I mean, if you think about it, I, I, I said, I've said this before, but we're 30 days of forgetfulness leads to a lifetime of sin. You know, I mean, 30 days of neglect of spiritual growth leads to untold wickedness in our own lives and certainly you know i think we talked about it even on sunday that the growth of a christian someone who is truly the lord's child um they're going over the course of their lifetime they're going to uh, the lord's going to progress them in sanctification for sure but at any moment of their life you will you can and will see a downturn of you know, disobedience. And, um, and so, and how does that happen? Well, I think as Doug pointed out, and I think as we see time and again in the Old Testament, neglect of the worship of the Lord is precisely how that happens. Um, and so, you know, those times we have his word and, and, and we, you know, engage in prayer and, and gather together with the body and, and, and in worship and, you know, many other common means of grace that he's given to us those help to grow a Christian. That, those are the path, pathways he's given for the Christian to grow. And, and we, if we neglect those things, then we end up in similar spots of idolatry at moments in our life, for sure. Terrifying. Michael. Yes. So many, so many times I am absolutely convicted by something that occurs and then listening to a sermon or, or a, a lecture or a talk and and it comes up again exactly as I had gone through it. This morning, Kennedy came to me near tears. His daddy was sick and he was really worried about his daddy. And he says, we need to pray for daddy. And I said, certainly. And we took hands and we sat down to pray. And he said, you talk. And I said, I certainly will. But I said, I want you to know that the Holy Spirit was given to us to be with us and have a hotline to God at all times. And he already knows our needs. Mm -hmm. He wants to hear us to voice it. But don't you worry if you can't find the words. God already knows your needs and he is looking after you. Yeah. And and that's what this prayer, this sermon tonight, prayer can be very simple. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, just read, you know, you, when you read the Lord's Prayer, it's like, you're like, man, I, I, I feel like my prayer should be bigger than that. I feel like I should use bigger words or I should, I don't know, shouldn't I go on for a long time talking about something? And Jesus says, look, you know, just ask him 
for what you need and just just talk to him i mean yeah it's um there's reverence there there's things like that that you grow in and you come to understand but man it's simple my my own kid told me from at the dinner table the other night he said um he said sometimes when i pray i don't know what to ask for really uh and paul doesn't he express that same thing in romans we don't know what to pray for as we ought but the holy spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words um and he who searches the the spirit knows what is the mind of the spirit so i, I you know it, it's it's an it's amazing what goes on in in prayer that we don't even really think about but um but yeah um we have tons of help for sure questions well, all right i think um i think we made it the internet held up for us so that's that's good i'm optimistic about next week we'll actually have people in the pews next week hopefully so um you're welcome to come if you want to if not we're gonna have the same kind of zoom set up again next week so it'll be both and we'll have a, a live in-person audience which will be kind of nice to have um so you're welcome to come we're still going to do the we still have the pews set up the same way where there's spacing and all that kind of stuff there'll be plenty of room to spread out i can promise you that but if you'd like to come and if you do come next week in person we will i'll print out the guides for the people that come in person so you'll have them if you come here so um maybe that should entice you to come uh you you get a real hard copy uh (laughs) so anyway Thank you for being here tonight and bearing with us with all this and the technological hurdles that we had to do. And thank Robert Maxwell, who got all of that sorted out for us. So uh, where would we be without the Maxwells? Uh, Both the older and the younger, but specifically I'm talking about the younger here. Uh, Let's pray as we go. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for technology holding up. And that's an answer to prayer. And uh, we thank you for just being able to talk about your word and and we thank you for just so many things in this passage that we could highlight and we only i only highlighted maybe a couple and uh and so i i pray that your spirit would do all of it uh the rest and highlight all the things that that are there in the word that others can observe and i pray that you would teach us through that um allow us to grow in in reverence of your word in awe of your word but also in love with you and the word that you have provided for us, knowing that through it, we can be trained in righteousness. We can be corrected and uh, reproved and admonished, encouraged, and uh, pray that all of this would serve to drive us to the word that you provide for us, your written, uh, inspired, inerrant, infallible word that is in front of us, that we read it and we are corrected and grown by it. Um, we thank you for preserving it for us that we may read it and devour it. And I pray you would give us an appetite for more of it in Jesus name. Amen.